Hey, welcome to episode 51 of Scar Bears. I'm Chris D.T. Gordon. It is a blessing to have you here with me today. And as always, Nate and Britton Barron bringing their post-production magic to my forum. If you want them to work their magic on your projects, just reach out to them at Nate Barron. Well, folks, things are up and running at linktr.ee forward slash Chris DT Gordon. The online store is up. You can buy your The Attitude of Gratitude tag. I also have Pass on Perfection and Go for Greatness gear up. So go to linktr.ee forward slash Chris DT Gordon to find my store, Chris DT Gordon's tag and pop shop, as well as the book. Blue Talks Presents. You can also find my speaking websites and all kinds of other things there. Well, today I am joined by former fellow band geek and many other things, Joyce Lynn Elder. Joyce, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. It is a blessing to have you on with me today. And as I said, you are a former band geek. And uh, what did you play? I played trumpet. Trump and I and I by the way I use band geek in the highest form of praise because it is a quite a hallowed collection of talented individuals and so but your story goes much beyond music and so we're going to get right into it Joyce so why don't you go ahead and get us started with how your journey began it all began Basically, right after the first year of college, I had been remarkably healthy up until that point. And when I was scheduled for oral surgery, I happened to have a cold, which was a rare event for me. So we went to a dock in the box place just to make sure that it was still okay to have that oral surgery. And they had said, nope, let's hold off on that. What they didn't tell me at that point was that there were symptoms of anemia. And I knew something was up by the way that they were acting. I was a nursing major. And so, you know, although I wasn't familiar with being to the doctor a lot, I knew as a nursing major that something is up when they start playing with all of your fingernails and <laughs> for, for a common cold. And yeah. it wasn't until a few days after that that they called and said, you are slightly anemic. And that is when the whole story really began. Okay. And just, uh, I'm sorry to stop you. Just uh, for background information, can you explain what anemia is? Anemia is a lack of cells in the blood. A lot of times it's associated with red cells. It is also common to see iron deficiency anemia. In my case, it turned out not to be either of those. It turned out to be a more rare version, which is aplastic anemia, where you're lacking all of the cells, the red cells, the white cells, and the platelets as well. So I was lacking the ability to carry oxygen appro appropriately to all the organs. I was lacking the ability to fight off infection. And I was also lacking the ability to clot appropriately in the event that I had been injured. Mm, okay. So, so I, I'm guessing that that actually takes us to the next part of your journey, correct? When they find out that this is a more serious situation than just the common cold. It does. I was quickly referred to a doctor, to a hematologist who 
for even for the first visit had scheduled a bone marrow biopsy, which is not something that you want to ever have to have happen. But thankful that they are able to do those and find out that yes, indeed, indeed I did have aplastic anemia. And from there, we started talking about what the options were. I started going into more major hospitals to look at the different um, treatments that were available. But even, of course, the treatment of choice for aplastic anemia is a bone marrow transplant. And it wasn't until I was going through my whole sophomore year with this, and I was doing pretty well. I wasn't really slowed down or stopped by any of this other than the fact that they had me stop playing trumpet. Mm. I The big thing that happened during that year though was that further testing revealed that I also had an even more rare blood disease, which was PNH. And that made it so that now the transplant was not the treatment of choice. It was the only transplant, it was the only treatment available. Oh, wow. And so then we started having to go the route of the transplant. Okay. And so between the summer of sophomore and junior years, I ended up being called in for the transplant. Okay. And now, where are you at this time? I was in Massachusetts. So I was fortunate that I had hospitals nearby that could could perform the transplant and that I was close enough that friends and family were able to come visit. Yeah, that is very, very fortunate, especially when most kids your age are doing summer jobs and or going abroad, you're going from hospital to hospital. Well, I'm sure they're nice hospitals, but not exactly how you want to spend your summer vacay. No, but I do get to say that I spent a summer living in Boston. I just can't say that I saw Boston at the same time. I was I, in, similar, I was in a state of isolation that. at that point. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, between sophomore and junior year, you find out that you have, that you have PNH. Now, what is that? PNH is short for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. And that's where for unknown reasons at night, the certain things are excreted into the urine and then voided in the morning when you first wake up. Mm -hmm. And so the only, it's a bone marrow failure syndrome. So I had two that were quite rare and it, it brought really delivered me to the transplant. Okay. And so how did the transplant take place? You know, can you just walk us through like a timeline in terms of what happened? I was brought into the hospital. We started on chemotherapy. The chemotherapy protocol for transplant patients for bone marrow transplants is different from when you're going through chemotherapy for something that is like cancer where they're not doing a transplant. And the reason for that is it's no longer the treatment itself. It is the effort to bring down the entire immune system. And the reason for that is that the bone marrow carries some of the immune system. So they wanted to make it so that the bone marrow wouldn't, my bone marrow would not reject the graft bone marrow and vice versa. We, to the extent that we wanted one thing to happen, it was better to have the graft um, see me as foreign, and that's called graft versus host. 
So they, in the course of doing the entire crash of the chemotherapy with crashing the immune system with chemotherapy, there we go. We, um, they also did a procedure to put in the Hickman catheters. Otherwise they're putting, constantly putting needles into the veins to draw blood or to put in medications. And so there's, um, there's that type of intensity happening as well. And as the immune system is starting to come down, then you do have to be in a special type of isolation unit called a laminar flow unit. And that's where they're bringing air in through a filtration system and they're pushing it out through an open door. You don't have the ability to leave the room. So you're in a very small room, the size of a reasonably sized bathroom and you are in there for the duration until the transplant has happened, until it's taken hold, and until they can um, start to see that it's a, you're at a point where they can start to recontaminate you and then get you back to a point where you can be out and gradually build. But for me, during that, while I was in that laminar flow unit, we knew that we wanted to see some graft versus host. It's a, it's a healthy thing to see because we then know that the graft is taking hold, it's doing its job, it's doing what we want and expect it to do. I had more complications than we wanted and they were considerably more severe. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with some respiratory symptoms starting at that point. I ended up with liver complications kidney complications and that, um, and while dealing with those and dealing with the pain and the risks of those, I also was dealing with the fact that I suddenly lost vision completely at the same time. I could see, uh, I could see light and dark, but I could not see anything else. And the funny part of that story is they sent in an, an eye doctor at that point. And so he's, I could tell that he was right by my bed, but he is sitting there saying, okay, tell me the, you know, can you read this chart? What's the smallest letters row that you can see? And I'm going, I can't even see you. I really, I, I just, that's the lady that's not on the board. <laughs> so, wow. I, so, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. So there, so I was in the laminar flow unit for three months and it was, I mean, you don't have a door, you have a, um, you have a clear vinyl, almost shower curtain type of thing that's separating you from the rest of the world. Nobody's allowed to come into the room except for once a day and that's a medical person. Um, and when they do, they're wearing multiple layers. They're wearing something from head to toe. And that's for my protection, really. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a fascinating experience being in when you're a healthy, otherwise teen, and you want to be out in the world and being able to go and do things. I, I'm just imagining you as a human goldfish. You're in this you're in this compartment, everyone can see you, you can see everyone, but there's no escape. That's right. And on top of that, not only are you in a fishbowl and as the fish, 
but you also do not have a shower. You do not have running water. You do not have a toilet. <laughs> wow. There is water that periodically runs, but it's not sterile. So I couldn't touch it, but it had to be there. And so it would just spontaneously at all hours of the day, just start spewing at, at full speed. It was quite the impressive experience. <laughs> wow. Please tell me, I mean, we might get to this later. Please tell me at least wrote a book about at least this room, because that is... It, it sounds like a low-level horror show, but at the same time, it's really funny. It it has its moments of hilarity. It I I when I have done presentations, I have related it to a bad camping trip. I mean, it's bad when you're in a clear tent, but it's even worse when you realize, great, now I'm not even allowed to brush my teeth. So it, the instead of having that, you know, minty fresh toothpaste and that toothbrush to be able to get things nice and clean. The best that you can do is <clears throat> using a saline soaked gauze pad with a finger at the best. <laughs> it was just not a good time. <laughs> wow. So, so if you're not able to do all those, you know, daily functions that we're used to, wasn't, wasn't there a fear that you might become ill because of that lack of hygiene? Well, you're still using the, when you're using mouthwashes and you're using the saline soaked gauze pads. Yeah. And the biggest concern was if you're using a toothbrush, um, it's going to cause, it's going to cause some bleeding in the gums and with the low platelets, that wasn't what they wanted. Okay. All right. Okay. So you're in this human goldfish bowl for three months or so. And so, uh, and then that's until they decide that uh, the graft has taken hold? Right. Okay. And so I'm, I'm guessing it has at the, after that point? Yeah, at three months, I was healthy enough. I was not expected at that point with the severity and the, um, and the types of the nature of the complications that I had they were not expecting me to survive at that point. Mm. Uh, but I was able to spontaneously recover. And at that point, we were able to start the recontamination process. But just because I'm out of the flow unit doesn't mean that I can go out again. I, at that point, was released to home and I could be outside. I could go into the hospital for checkups and treatments. I could not go into public places. And that took, that was a nine month stage for me. And so you have a bit of insight into what a pandemic is like well before we get into this. And so <laughs> it, how did you, okay, really quick. I know we're uh, veering away, but I just have to ask. So how did you treat the pandemic last year? Was this like, oh, I've done this before. It really was pretty much like that. For me, I still have, even though it's been many years since this transplant, I still have a lower immune system. And I also have 24% lung function. Mm. So I, during the fall and winter, am a little more reclusive. I go out to get to run the errands that I need to run, but I'm not out and about as much as I might want to be otherwise. And so when, when this whole hit and people were upset saying, you can't live like this, I'm like, 
<laughs> well, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> Point of order. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so going back uh, to this uh, nine month stint of your pandemic uh, primer, we'll call it. Uh, so where does, where does this leave you academically? What year of college are you now? I'm still on hold. At that point, I was, I was lucky that I had finished the second year of the nursing program. The two main well, three main things that had changed for me in that were I no longer could participate in band because of the low platelets. I also could not participate in gym because of the low red cells. And I also was not able to participate in the microbiology lab because of the low white cells. And so across the board, there was something that did end up having an impact. And the biggest thing about not being in the lab was that it does have an impact on the on the understanding that you develop even in the lecture. So it does make it a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Again, and it's already a complicated topic. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that, you know, that practical piece, if that's missing, it's hard to put, you know, sometimes for uh, you know, understanding, it's hard to put those pieces together. Uh, cognitively, if you don't have that practical, that you know, the practical practice. So, how did you get by with that? I was able to study well enough that I could handle the rote parts of the exams. Okay. The and the other parts that were missing, it just wasn't my best subject. I knew that at that point it was like, okay, not shooting for the A. Now we're, we're lowering the standards a little bit and I'm going to be pleased to pass at this okay. point. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure if you ever read uh, the Harry Potter series. I have not. Okay. All right. I'm just, I, I, I'm just drawing a, a similarity from, uh, there's a, one of the books, a, a certain professor uh, has all the kids do rote work and they don't get the practical experience that they need in a certain area. And so I just is imagining that you were, that's what you had to deal with. So um, my, my trip to Hogwarts back, I'm back from Hogwarts. So now you are, you graduated, correct? From nursing school? No, at that point, I'm still, even after the transplant, after that year, I was, I had talked with the doctors about returning to the nursing program and they had said, you know, realistically, if you were already a nurse, we'd say, yes, you can do that on certain floors. But because of the fact that you have the worst part ahead of you, you've got, you know, when you're a nursing major and you're going in and you're doing your practicums and you're, you're helping out in the, in the whatever floor that you're on, they're going to give you the worst, most dirtiest jobs. And so the risk was too high. So yeah. I ended up making a change to a new um, to a new study. And actually I switched colleges altogether at that point. And that was when things really got exciting. I, the transplant taught me a lot about the, I really gained a lot of confidence and that's where I really started to learn the importance of me, my perspective and being able to present it using communication. So that yeah. communication and confidence really became 
a set of tools that I really relied on heavily. And when I went into, when I switched colleges and went into the, into a new field, um, it, it, I was meeting with the program coordinator and he was really trying to sell me on it. And he had said, you know, if you're, this is a really versatile program, I think you're really going to like it. It's so versatile that if your grades are high enough, you could even go to law school. Now, my confidence was a little bit higher, but it wasn't that high. And so at that point, I, if I had been drinking something, I seriously think that I would have spewed whatever oh I was drinking at that point, but I wasn't. And so, but that seed had been planted. And the next thing I knew, I was in an undergrad business law course and I loved it. And so the, I graduated early and I ended up um, going to law school and really honing in on the communication skills and the combination of the nursing, the psychology from the undergrad, the legal, and then I added a lot of other things even after that. It really has made a very well-rounded um, perspective for me in whatever situation I'm in. So whether I'm dealing with a crisis or a conflict, it's really been an amazing set of experience for me that has helped a lot of people. Yeah. And it has gotten me through a hostage incident that I ended up resolving as a hostage. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. uh, do you have time to maybe, or the inclination to share a little bit of that story? Because that's, that's a little bit of a, a breadcrumb to drop there. <laughs> I was in, in the office. I was not in my own office, but I was I had my back turned because I was standing in someone else's office and, and I'd heard a commotion in the hallway, but I really wasn't paying any attention to it. It just ended up that, you know, I was, it didn't concern me and I wasn't expecting anything for that I was, I had going on. So I just totally ignored it and kept on have, carrying on the conversation until I saw people looking past me and the color drained out of their, their faces and their jaws dropped all at the same time. So now I'm a curious person and, and, and so I, I end up turning around and I'm an arm's length away from a person that had stormed the front desk. And the commotion that we heard was him going in hot pursuit of me door to door, looking for me and hearing the receptionist on his tail, trying to stop him and yelling and objecting. And then behind her was the office manager. So there was this whole train that was happening oh, wow. behind me and um, he had made a credible threat at that point. We knew some enough about him to know that that was credible and it had to be taken seriously. But up until that point happened, I didn't know that I had, I didn't know that I had training that or experience that could help me through something like that. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't realize the, the skill and, and, the value that I could bring. I didn't understand that other people didn't really have the ability to be able to handle the conflicts and the crises. And so that experience and resolving it on my own with him was the thing that really led me down the road of conflict and crisis strategy. So you said he was targeting you specifically. So why was that? I was the person that was involved in the, I was the person, I was the representative for the account that he was 
needing to talk with. And so oh, he knew okay. me, he knew my name. We'd had interactions in the past. So he knew who he was looking for and he knew what I looked like. Okay. Okay. Well, congratulations, not only on resolving that scary situation, but for, I love how you are finding the nuggets of wisdom and the tools through all these very difficult situations to build your life, essentially. You know, you're, you're taking these, you know, you're creating your own little toolbox from these different areas and crafting your own path. And that's, that's beautiful. And so, you know, that's really what it's about. It's our life is not the circumstances that we are faced with. Our life is about, yeah, we have those circumstances. There's something that happened, but how are we going to respond to it? Yes. That's the important, that's the part that really carries the most weight. And so to that end, I have one system that I ended up creating from the hostage incident for dealing with conflict and helping with de-escalation. And I have another system that I created that helps with crises. And that really in part came out of the transplant as well as the broken back incident that happened as an additional late term complication of that. Again, you're dropping breadcrumbs. Uh, what happened uh, with this broken back? Uh... I, because of the transplant, I had a long-term course and we're talking decades of use of prednisone. And so there was some osteoporosis that had happened. And over the course of weeks, I had, had been coughing, had been able to break the, the thoracic column vertebrae badly enough that it just, they just crumbled. So seven, all in all, we think at least seven thoracic vertebrae really had such serious compression fractures that I lost about three inches of height. Wow. And because it all happened in the thoracic area of the spine, I really lost a lot of space in that thoracic cavity where the lungs and the heart are. And so I, and from the transplant, from the bone marrow transplant, one of the complications that I had was that the graft saw me as foreign and it manifested as scar tissue building up in the respiratory system. So the lungs had ended up expanding. So now I've got hyperinflated lungs in a smaller cavity. So they had even less space to move. And so that lowered the lung capacity from about 27% down to 24%, which does not sound significant, but when you're at that level, any loss that you experience is significant. Yes, yeah. And yeah, I think that's important to point out that when you already have, you know, that's more than 10% yeah. of your lung capacity. And so, and I'm sorry, I giggle because I just imagined the uh, the scene from Aladdin where the genie talks about having a phenomenal cosmic power in an itty bitty living space. I was just imagining your lungs being like that. Yeah. You have these yes. huge lungs and your and, and your thoracic is the upper part of your backbone, correct? It's the midsection. midsection. So there's the cervical, which is the neck. And then underneath that is the largest part of the spine, which is the thoracic. Okay. So it's from here down to the about the waistline. Okay. So about your sternum to your waistline about? 
actually from your neck. Neck, okay. Really. Yeah. Okay. And it, um, as part of that, because of the impact that it had had on my ability to breathe and the ability to function, we were trying to pursue a lung transplant. Mm. And at that point, I was referred to seven of the top hospitals and facilities that performed those. And all seven of them declined. Very Duke University, <laughs> Duke Hospital had the distinction of, of turning it around in the most impressively short period of time. I mean, within an hour, they had looked at the paperwork and, and written the response that not no, but <laughs> seriously, no, no way, no. And so, and one so of the- it was, uh, of the of the chances of survival that you had, or was it something else? It's because of the fact that I had so many comorbidity factors. I had the osteoporosis, I had the broken back, I had the, um, the graft versus host, and I had a whole host of things that could be problematic. And what happens with the organ transplants is understandable because of the shortage of organs available. And at the same time, it's also very unfortunate because what happens is that if a person is had, receives a transplant, when somebody passes after having an, had an organ transplant, it goes against that facility. And it's been said that even if they are involved in an auto accident, it still goes against that facility because they did not it still goes to their statistics of a person past. It's a whole numbers thing, really. And so at that point, then they're sitting there looking at it and going, I, we need to keep our numbers up in order to be competitive and in order to be able to get the best opportunity. You know, we really need to keep our numbers up. And so, and they also have an abundance of people that are trying to get them. And so they're not going to look as seriously at a person who has so many comorbidity factors that it's just overwhelming for them. Yeah. So, so uh, we're looking at this like gambling, who, who is feeling lucky? Who decides to, to take you on? Right. And for me, it wasn't as much that, that they had declined me. That was already, that was upsetting. But the biggest part for me was the moment when one of the doctors had said, you'd be better off going home and spending the days that you have left in the comfort of your own home. And like, days, who, who says that? <laughs> wow. So and, bedside matter needs work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and, you know, at the time I was at home and I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's a nice try, but I'm not comfortable. I can't breathe. I can't move. <laughs> and the nice part of it was that that is really kind of the thing that really kicked me into action. It was almost one of those, oh, is that a dare? moments? <laughs> and so I ended up really kicking into action. I decided what it was that I wanted to do because at that point I had, I had a moment when I was really, really upset about it. You know, I was like, I, I am going to pass away. And so why am I so upset? Well, because I didn't get to make the contribution that I had that had been so important to me during the 
bone marrow transplant. Because during the bone marrow transplant, I had said, okay, I really need to make a great contribution because I want to pay this forward. And so I hadn't had the opportunity to really make that contribution yet. Okay. Had I done some positive things? Yes, I had saved lives. I had done other things as well. But I, I really didn't feel like I had made the greatest contribution that I could. And so I decided, no, I'm going to make that. And or I'm going to die trying, one of the two. It doesn't matter either way. It's, I'm going, and I went about my, my business just looking for any little thing of, okay, what do I need in order to do this? What do I need in order to do that? And it was a, an impressive pro process to go through, and it really brought a lot of clarity. It brought a lot of meaning to me, and it brought a lot of strength because I really was able to come back from that. It took years, but after one year, I went back for a reevaluation for a lung transplant with the same place that had declined me and, and made the comment about the days left. And they did not, they could not believe the change that had happened. Numerically, everything was still exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so they were, eyeing the possibility and likelihood of making it so that I would not even be eligible to reapply. Oh. But because of the fact that I had shown so much improvement, they ended up deciding that, no, she's actually functioning so well right now that she doesn't qualify because she's now too healthy. And that's exactly the response that I wanted. And nobody wants to have to have a lung transplant. The, the longer you can go without one, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. And so I really consider that to be a, the best possible outcome for me. And, um, but it also is the thing that really helped me to flush out the the one decision process that I came up with for dealing with crises. Okay. Wow. And, you know, again, I am amazed and impressed with how you're able to take these incredibly tough situations and turn them around to your advantage. So what are you doing now, Joyce? I have a company called Conflict Options LLC. And in that, for that company, I do I do conflict consulting and communication consulting, and I also have a side for crises as well. So if I and I can do mediations, I can go in and help to facilitate meetings in order to either resolve or prevent conflicts from happening and being able to help the organizations move forward in the best way possible. I can do ombuds work and a host of other things as well, all in the name of reducing that conflict. We have the impression so often that conflict is a bad thing, but it's not bad. Conflict actually is the thing that causes inventions to be made. Conflict is really when something bumps up against an idea, belief, value, or need, something along those lines. And that doesn't mean that it's bad, it just means oh, there's a boundary, and now I've got to deal with this thing. And, you know, so the inventor of the remote control, he had a conflict because he didn't want to have to get up off the couch to go and turn on the television and go back and sit down every time he wanted to either turn it on, turn it off, turn up the volume, turn down the volume, change the channel or whatever. And 
that's what led to that invention. And that's really what happens in many cases is when you have the right kinds of conversations, it can do that. And so that's a lot of what I am doing is having helping to facilitate those conversations. And the same thing is true on the crisis side. When somebody is dealing with a personal crisis or when an organization is dealing with one that more impacts it, the whole organization is impacted. Even if it's a single leader in the company dealing with a, um, with a divorce, in some cases that can actually infect the entire organization's stock. It can affect, the, it has a, a significant impact in general. And so I'm going in in those cases and really helping to make the best out of that. We don't have to take it as just the circumstance and throw up our arms. We can do a lot more and make things turn out Actually, in some cases, as I've been, hope, I hope I've been showing here, we, we can actually use those to get ahead as well. No, you've done a fantastic job of illustrating how we can take those conflicts and not only right the wrongs, but actually make the, the rights better. Mm -hmm. And so if someone wanted to reach out to you, how could they contact you, Joyce? I am on LinkedIn. I am on Instagram, and you can also reach me on my website, which is conflictoptions.us. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Joyce. I greatly appreciate, first of all, being blessed with your story. Uh, you have an amazing uh, journey that you uh, shared with us, so I greatly appreciate that. And I, I, again, I love your mindset of turning those conflicts not only into solutions, but also forwarding the process and making progress with them. And so I have one more question for you. My audience always loved the, loves the learning answer to this. What is your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> I, I said that it was Dino from the Flintstones, mainly because of the fact that he is, he was fun. You know, he, he was able to bring a, have a light moment. It's something that, um, dinosaurs could be seen as scary, but he was sort of more of a friendly and fun, humorous type of character in the show. And so that was my reasoning behind that. Well, that's great. That's a great answer. And so thank you uh, again, Joyce, for uh, joining me today. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me at linktree, linktr.ee forward slash Chris DT Gordon. Again, you can find out about my speaking websites, my speaking engagements, my podcast, the YouTube channel, the tag and pop store. You can find a lot of that merchandise, my book. Well, the book I contributed in Blue Tosh presents business life in the universe volume three and a couple other things. So everyone, thank you very much for joining us today. Please have a great day and remember to pass on perfection and go for greatness.